our next, our next speaker is going to talk about a subject close to my heart. Um, <laughs> aging with HIV. Uh, I've fallen, but I can get up. <laughs> Dr. Hepburn is from uh, Mount Sinai in, in New York. She was head of infectious disease there. Um, and it's a great pleasure to have you speak to you. Thank you, John. It's nice to be back uh, speaking at an IAS USA uh, meeting. I mean, I am going to talk about aging, but John kind of stole my thunder there because, you know, I guess, uh, you know, it was all about us aging. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, as we go on here, we, we really are. So enough about me and let's talk about uh, aging in uh, people with HIV. These are my financial disclosures and the learning objectives, which are in your syllabus. Um, just briefly, um, as background, HIV infection, even when it is controlled, is associated with chronic immune activation that's superimposed upon immunologic uh, senescence in the older adult. And so, as we know, older adults may be diagnosed later. Um, part of that is the way our testing strategies are that somehow people over the age of 65 didn't need to be tested. And so when they do get diagnosed, they have more advanced HIV infection at the time of their presentation. We do know that there is less robust immunologic response to antiretroviral therapy in this population. These are the individuals that we frequently see that we can't get their T cells up above 200. And HIV infected patients accumulate these age-related conditions and diseases at a younger chronological age. And these conditions are what now are accounting for the majority of deaths. And I'll show more data on that. And so as providers, we all need guidance then on how to manage persons with HIV with comorbidities. How do they manifest? What are the drug interactions we have to be concerned about? And what about this drug versus disease and host interplay? And these are things that yet we still don't really understand. But let's go through who our population is. And this is in the United States. And as you know, the CDC is always a few years behind on, on uh, demographics. But you see from 2016 that we have, you know, a fair amount of new diagnoses occurring in individuals over the age of 50. And in fact, not quite a thousand. But now for 2018, I understand it is going to be about a thousand individuals uh, 65 and older that have been diagnosed. And when you look at the, the population that is living with HIV now, um, about 45% are over the age of 50. And so since the 1980s, we've seen this increase in the percentage of people uh, living with HIV over the age of 50. In 2015, it was about 47%, and 16% were about over the age of 65. Again, my understanding is that number now is more around 20%. Um, the good news is when you look at those who are newly diagnosed um, in, above age 50, we're now seeing that the last time was 35% were diagnosed with AIDS at the time of their diagnosis. And this is down from 40%. So that I think does suggest that we're now starting to do better testing to the older community um, as well and getting people identified earlier in the course of their disease and hopefully preventing um, some of these long-term consequences of advanced HIV that we've been seeing. 
Uh, African-Americans remain disproportionately affected, accounting for 42% of cases. Uh, MSM is the most common mode of transmission in older men, whereas heterosexual contacts are most common in older women. So we now have great news, as Mike Sag mentioned earlier, that there's increased life expectancy on heart. However, life expectancy is still shorter than the general population. And this is especially true for those that have low CD4 counts and are on salvage regimen. What we don't really know yet is what is the impact of this increased life expectancy on the comorbidity prevalence and on the types of comorbidities that people with HIV will be developing as they age. They're more likely to be treatment experienced with the consequences of previous antiretroviral therapy toxicities, especially think about the D drugs, you know, with uh, neuropathies and everything. So, you know, the medications now are more metabolic friendly, but people that started antiretroviral therapy in the 90s still have the consequences of those old therapies. And the impact on this increased comorbidity has affecting uh, timing on antiretroviral initiation. But the big question for us as providers is how appropriate are the current primary care guidelines that we have for the general population? And do they need to be modified for people that do have HIV. And to date, there's been no systematic method to predict whether the guidelines developed for the general population actually do apply to individuals with HIV. I always say we should do at least what is recommended for the general population, but we may have to do more for our patients um, that do have HIV. So these are the two guidelines. Um, this is now horribly out of date. Um, the good news is that a new panel has just been uh, formed and hopefully they'll have new uh, guidance out for uh, by 2020, um, well, hopefully around January. I actually really do like the EX uh, guidelines. They're very comprehensive, but for primary care, they have everything that you can think in there. Um, and they're easy to use. They have like just one page, like COPD, and it goes through all the inhalers and everything. So I really do think this is well done and uh, uh, really encourage you to look at their, their guideline. So these are the health conditions that we typically think about with uh, people that are aging. And I, for my talk, I'm really going to focus on cardiovascular, particular atherosclerotic uh, coronary heart disease and an endocrine on diabetes. Um, you may have heard the American Cancer Society just came out with new guidelines for, for colon cancer screening to begin at the age of 45. Um, the United States Preventive Task Force has not yet an, uh, released their guidelines, so we'll see if they fall in line with that. As you know, like the breast cancer screening, there's a lot of differences depending on who the professional society is that's recommending but, you know, it may be something that we need to consider for our patients that maybe 50 isn't the right time to be screening for colon cancer. Um, liver, lung, um, certainly dementia, you know, is, is a big issue, whether it's vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, or HIV-associated neurologic diseases, and then the psychosocial issues um, that come more so with aging. I want to put a really big plug because I think the one thing that we all can do is we can really try to get our patients to stop smoking. I think this was from the, the medical monitoring project done by the CDC. And no matter what age, 
sex, race, ethnicity, education level or income, the prevalence of smoking is so much higher in persons uh, with HIV compared to the general population. Just to point out, for instance, almost 50% of those that have less than a high school education smoke, whereas in general population, it's 30%. So I think we can make a lot of headways and prevent a lot of comorbidities by really focusing in on getting our patients to stop smoking. This is a study from the NA Accord. And so this is a, the cohort study that's been followed longitudinal and hopefully they'll have more data coming out this year as they like to do everything in 10 year blocks. But this is looking at the number of conditions that people have. And so you can see back in 2000, about 28% had one condition and you really don't see that much. I mean, 3%, 2% had three condition 10 years later, you can see that bigger increase, right? That there's more multimorbidity and almost doubling of the number of people that have two conditions. And now we're up to 6% and you're starting to see uh, four and five uh, conditions in the, in the population. Not surprisingly, um, thinking about a, in the general population as well, uh, hyperlipidemia and hypertension remain the mo two most common um, you can see here though, this is in a Venn diagram, those that have both hypercholesterolemia and hypertension has significantly increased in that decade. Um, interesting that diabetes was no longer number three, uh, chronic kidney disease took over. And you might wonder how many of the chronic kidney disease actually is from the hypertension as well as from diabetes. This is from the Italian cohort where they looked at um, chronic complications by age and HIV status. And we always say that, you know, our people are having, you know, chronologically aging, right? More so than the general population. And this study really does detail that, that it's about a decade difference. So if you look at the individuals with HIV that are less than 40 years old, and, and just to um, orient you, this the gray is no age-related diseases. So 16% have one, one comorbidity, and then you see the red is the two comorbidities. That less than 40 goes into the 41 to 50 years, right, age group. And as you go 41 to 50, that kind of matches what's happening in the general population of 51 to 60 and so on. So the 51 to 60 is fitting into the, the breakdown of the greater than 60 years. So you can see that the comorbidities are occurring about a decade earlier than in the general population. This was a study done by New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, looking at cardiovascular disease mortality among uh, people with HIV and overall almost 30,000 deaths. And there's a few interesting things I think that they found here. Not surprising is people living longer with HIV. We are seeing that people have more cardiovascular disease, right? And the general population, we are now seeing a decrease in, in cardiac deaths partly because, again, medications, right, earlier diagnosis and uh, aggressive treatment for heart disease. But it's not surprising then that we're seeing less HIV-related infections and, as the cause of death, and we're seeing more uh, cardiac complications. But what's interesting is when you actually look at the age breakdown, and you can see that um, 
at the younger age that there is an increased risk of cardiac deaths. Now, this may be, as Joe mentioned earlier, that people, you know, these really aren't cardiac deaths, right? This is coming from registries, from death certificates, and it could very well be that some of this really is overdoses and being mis- misclassified as uh, cardiac disease. Yeah, then you can see though, when she hit 65, that it really evens out. So if you think about it during our lifespan, you know, we develop plaque and we have progression of atherosclerosis over time, that once you start hitting over the age of 65, that you're really about the same risks as somebody without HIV from the traditional risk factors. So it it evens out. The other is that there is less individuals at this age. So hence, you can see that the you know, the confidence interval is is much wider. The cardiovascular mortality was also lower among people who were suppressed than those that were unsuppressed. Now, this is the same Italian cohort, and they had one eligibility criteria. They made it simple. You had to be over the age of 65, and that was it. And so what they're doing here is they're looking at people without HIV, individuals that had uh, HIV for less than 10 years duration, individuals that had 10 to 20 years duration, and then greater than 20 years with HIV. And they looked at at the various comorbidities here. And the ones that were significant was that there was more dyslipidemia um, among individuals with the longer duration of HIV, right? So the negatives, 10 years, 10 to 20 years, greater than 20 years. And you can see that was um, so true for chronic kidney disease and for type 2 diabetes. But they didn't see any difference really in the hypertension um, and and cardiovascular disease, which kind of matches what the New York data showed, right? If you're over the age of 65, there really wasn't significant differences. And this cohort was similar. Um, On these graphs was looking at your, your risk of having multimorbidity by age. And and again, here, what you're saying is that the longer you have uh, HIV, then you higher your rate of having multimorbidities. And this was looking at drugs, and, and it's probably a little bit small to see, but these are various antihypertensives, aspirin, etc. And, and just showing that here, that the longer that you have HIV, the more likely that you're going to have be on multiple meds and the concern for polypharmacy in addition to your HIV meds. So how do we define cardiovascular disease risk among people with HIV? Scores fluctuate as we age, as we change behaviors, and we treat conditions. And so at what time is the risk score more accurate? And when does HIV exactly contribute to that risk? So if you have a patient in front of you and they've been smoking their risk score might be 9%, right? They come see you next week and they stop smoking. Do you click off no smoking? Well, then their risk score is going to be five, right? So the same thing with HIV. If you're going to count HIV as a risk factor, is it when they have HIV or like what they did in the, in the Italian geriatric study that it's after you've had HIV for 20 years? And what about the previous types of meds? So how does HIV itself Was it the virus? Is it the drugs? Is it, right? What is it? And how could you actually use that to define the risk? And I think that's why it's been so difficult for us to actually calculate what somebody's risk is when they have HIV. 
but never fear, there's an app for everything. This is the AHA guidelines on the go. What's really impressive to me is I call this the world piece of lipid guidelines because they got the American Heart Association, black cardiologists, PAs, pharmacists, preventive medicine, endocrinologists. They got 12 groups to get together. That's what we need in Congress, right? You need those groups to all get together. It's just really amazing to me that they were able to pull this off. But one of the nice things is, guess what? HIV is actually considered in this, and they had HIV experts. So that was very impressive. So our first question, according to the 2018 multi-specialty guideline on management of blood cholesterol, persons with HIV, A, age 40 to 75, should start a statin if the LDL is greater than 160. Age 40 to 75 should have a coronary artery calcium or CAC score if the risk is intermediate. Age 20 to 39 should have lifetime risk calculated or age 40 to 75 should measure ApoB and lipoprotein A if the risk score is less than 5%. I was waiting for a heart song, you know. <laughs> All right, so we have age 40 to 75 as the winner here. Um, actually, the answer is here. Ah, shocker, right? So let me go through why that's true. Um, so this is the new guidelines and there's actually like, I like to call it the, you know, like the made for dummies. They have a, this really great guidelines made simple. Although sometimes I don't think this is so simple, but, but what they did is they actually, unlike the previous guidelines that always started at age 40, they actually go all the way down to birth and, and they give recommendations. And so age 20 to 39 now they're recommending that everyone um, get their lifetime risk score estimated so that you can help people and start earlier for prevention of heart disease. Um, so this is the same that if your LDL is greater than 190, um, you should be on a high intensity statin. What's different here with diabetes, before diabetes was always considered greater than 20%, high intensity statin. Now they say moderate intensity statin, but then you calculate risk. And if, they, and if the risk assessment is that it's greater than 20%, then they would go on high intensity. The reason for this age 75 about risk discussion is as you know, these are based on evidence-based from clinical trials and the clinical trials and statins excluded patients over the age of 75, so they really can't comment on that. And then you go down the, the um, list here. So for age 40 to 75 that have an LDL greater than 70 and less than 90 without diabetes, then you do the risk calculator. And so less than 5% is low risk. You should just emphasize lifestyle. Again, prevention mes messages. When it's 5 to 7.5%, it says if risk enhancers present, right? So you go here to your risk enhancers, and guess what? This is where HIV is. So HIV is here, 
there should be a discussion on that five to seven and a half percent about starting a moderate intensity stand. It just says that it may favor. It doesn't say do it, but it is a consideration then. Once you're at seven and a half percent to the 19.9 percent, that's intermediate risk. And there they actually do. If you have any of the risk risk enhancers, then you really should be offered a moderate intensity statin. I'm going to go over the imaging again a little bit later, but if you're on the fence about what it is, then this is where you would do a coronary artery calcium scan. And really, this is more about us trying to negotiate with the patient of why they should be on it. So when you have that patient that says, no, I really don't want to do a statin, you could get a CAC and that would help you um, negotiate with the patient why that would be beneficial for them to be on a statin. And then obviously greater than 20% high risk, um, you should be on, on statins. So again, the risk in HIV is a risk enhancing factor. Um, and again, on that borderline, it may favor, it doesn't say you should definitely prescribe, but you really need to get into that discussion. So what are those discussions? So they gave these top 10 take home messages and this was number six of 10. So in the individuals that are 40, 75 years of age, then you're supposed to have this risk discussion. So you would review all their major risk factors that they have. So smoking again, right? You would talk about the presence of the risk enhancing factors. So that's HIV, right? That's going to be really important now in that risk discussion that's gonna emphasize favoring um, being on a statin. What the benefits are um, for them, as well as what are the risks. So the benefit-risk discussion, drug-to-drug -drug interactions, considerations of cost, and then importantly, what are the patient's preferences and values um, in the shared decision-making? So again, for the imaging, this is about the, the, the group that you're uncertain that they may favor being on a statin or you know, you're not really sure if they should. That's when you really wanna consider measuring that CAC. And again, this is more negotiations for you. If you think your patient should be on a statin, but the patient's really reluctant to start a statin, a CAC could really help because if it's zero, it's very unlikely that person's going to have a heart attack, right? So then you might say, okay, no, I agree with you. Let's wait a while. On the other hand, if they're cigarette smokers or they have diabetes, it's still going to favor um, that they should be on a statin. So which statin should individuals um, be on? So the only two I would say, simvastatin and lovastatin, um, really are contraindicated anytime using a PI and, and copacistat. There's other drug interactions though with, with the fabrins and also for the most part, we've always avoided these. I think atorvastatin and rizuvastatin is what most of us prescribe. It's the, they're, they're cheaper. Um, you can dose adjust as needed. Pravastatin does have a drug interaction with uh, boosted darunavir, so that was one of the pretest questions, remember? So it was patavastatin. That's the, that is the safest as far as drug interactions. Um, there are two different formulations. One is patavastatin calcium, one is patavastatin magnesium. The magnesium one is cheaper. However, it's still much more expensive. And I know even myself, it's difficult to get over a Torva and Rizuvastatin. So, but, but from a drug interaction perspective, Patava has the least uh, likely to interact. And so you wanna check 
fasting or non-fasting, right? You can get non-fasting lipids if they're normal, nothing more to do. If the non-fasting is abnormal, then you would go on, you do a fasting, and this should be done at time of diagnosis. This might be almost the same time again. Um, and then to assess any time that you do use a statin, and then otherwise every 12 months. I just want to point out that statins do work. I hear frequently, well, statins don't work as well in people with HIV, and that's not true. This was one study, the Intrepid study, that compared head-to-head patavastatin versus pravastatin. Um, This showed that patavastatin was actually superior to pravastatin in lowering um, LDL, and you can see non-HDL and ApoB as well. But my point is, these, this reduction is exactly what you'd expect to see in the general population. So they do work as well as far as lipid lowering. This is the reprieve study that's been going on. This is for people who do not have a clinical indication to be on a statin. Having said that, the new guidelines came out and uh, maybe not so much, right? Um, Nevertheless, remember it says may favor a statin. So I still think this study is going to be very important for us to know whether or not for individuals with HIV, whether giving a statin actually does reduce major adverse cardiac events. Um, The study is now starting to be in year six the uh, the sub-study, the mechanistic sub-study that was looking at uh, un- non-calcified plaque has been uh, completed just about. It's it's fully enrolled and the final patients are in fo- uh, getting follow-up and should have their two-year scan soon. Shifting gears a little bit, we all talk about uh, patients may be at risk actually of uh, being in a hypercoagulable state and having risk for acute MIs, right, from a sudden clot or uh, DVTs. And this is just, uh, you know, multiple reasons why they could be in a hypercoagulable state. So let's go to question number two here about who is most likely to benefit from an aspirin daily? Patients with uh, HIV who have an ACC risk score of greater than 10%, at least 40 years old with diabetes, at least 40 years old is primary prevention, or those that have a risk score greater than 5% aged 40 to 75. They give me the older songs, right? All right, those with a risk score. All right, so, uh, so let's get them up here because the real answer is this group, the 35% with diabetes. So why is this right and the other one's not right? So we think that aspirin should be effective, right? They, we have an increased risk of ischemic cardiovascular events. There's been studies that have shown that activated platelets have been implicated in the thrombotic events because of both being pro-inflammatory as well as uh, uh, thrombogenetic effects. And HIV-infected patients have increased circulating platelet monocyte complexes. Their platelets express high levels of P-selectin. Aspirin's low cost. Um, It has immune modulatory effects. And aspirin has been shown to decrease morbidity, mortality, cardiovascular events in individuals that have known coronary heart disease. 
and it may have an important role in cardiovascular and cancer prevention in those at risk. But the studies have shown, and there's been a lot of news about this now, that aspirin is not effective for people that do not have coronary artery disease. It is great for secondary. But I thought what was really amazing about this news clip, though, was that it takes about 17 years after evidence is published before any of us believe it and implement it. So, so aspirin has proven benefits in secondary prevention, but there's questionable to no benefits in primary prevention except in diabetes. And the ARRIVED study that was published last year, over 12,000 patients, there was no significant difference in rates of death, heart attacks, or strokes, and there was more bleeding. So there was more risk than there was benefit. In diabetes, it's a little bit different. There was a significant decrease in serious vascular events, but you still have to watch out for the major bleeding events. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a not absolute. You have to really weigh your risks and benefits of aspirin even in diabetics. The new ADA definitions this year for diagnosing diabetes, we're all familiar with using A1C, fasting blood sugar two hours or random greater than 200. However, this year they've announced that A1C should not be used in people with HIV nor in sickle cell at, for diagnosis. You're gonna use it for monitoring diabetics, but this is based on a lot of studies, again, remember my 17 years we're approaching here, 2006 when we started having all these different studies coming out saying that the A1C would either under or overestimate. So if you're overestimating who has diabetes, they're going on meds they don't need. And if you're underestimating, by the time they actually get diagnosed, they've had diabetes untreated for quite a while. And so I don't know what this means for the integrase because nobody's looked at it yet, but you can see the curves here, especially for the PIs, it was really way off. But you can see if somebody has a hemoglobin A1C here of five, their blood sugar is already elevated, right? So they probably actually have more of a A1C of around 6.5. And so Study after study, we have five published studies on this showing that the, the A1Cs and the blood sugars are not really matching on people that are on uh, antiretroviral therapy. And, and even HIV itself, just like with sickle, if you have any type of hemoglobinopathy or something, it could be altered. Um, just a reminder about uh, bones. There is the FRAX uh, uh, scoring that you can do. If people, if you get a DEXA scan and they're in between here is that you should calculate the FRAC score. And then depending on what that risk is, then you would use a, a bisphosphonate or you know, lifestyle advice and monitoring. So in summary, take home points. Um, we know that there's excess cardiovascular disease in our population. Individuals aging with HIV versus individuals newly diagnosed may have different cardiovascular disease risk, and we don't know how to calculate that. The largest modifiable risk factor, it really is smoking, and, and so I can't drill that down enough to stop smoking. The etiology of this is multifactorial, whether it's from immune activation, this chronic inflammation, direct viral effects, or the drugs, there's just multiple things going on. Um, we need to figure out a way to have improved risk assessments, 
just a reminder, this is something I always find we forget, is abdominal aorta aneurysm screening for men over the age 65 who smoke, that we should use fasting blood sugars to diagnose diabetes in people with HIV rather than A1Cs. And over age 40 with diabetes with an LDL greater than 70 should be on a statin and aspirin if no contraindications. Uh, I'll stop there and take any questions. Thank you. Your questions? All right. Would you consider statins in a young man, 20 to 30, who did have HIV without diabetes, hypertension, and non-smoker, but with a moderately elevated evidence of uh, C-reactive protein, low HDL, and low LDL? Well, if it's a low LDL, I would say no. But if you look there, there was some other things. I don't think uh, C-reactive proteins are actually... Um, credible in the HIV population. There's been several studies that have even shown that, particularly women on antiretroviral therapy, that their CRPs have elevated. So we don't really know how to interpret that as far as cardiac risk. But if you had like a high ApoBs, um, you know, so those other things, or you had persistently elevated LDL above 160, that would be an indication to be on a statin, but for this gentleman that's described as is, I would not recommend a statin. Mike? Well presented, Judy. The, one thing I'm having trouble fully putting my head around is that Heidi Crane and the Scenix group published a study of adjudicated myocardial infarctions and found that half of the MIs were secondary MIs, right. not the usual sort of atherosclerotic or type of thing, and the median age for them was about 40 years old. So it feels like all the AHA and these guidelines are all based on the standard type one plaque formation type of thing. So what do you, how do we do risk reduction for those who might be at risk for type two MIs? Right. So, I mean, so we're really talking really about substance use and, and things like that. And, and so that's a, it is very different, right? And this, these guidelines um, actually, if you look, their title is about management of blood cholesterol, right? So it is about the atherosclerotic hypolipidemia and going that way. So I don't know how to calculate risk of somebody who is like, say, an intermittent cocaine user, but that goes falls into really the, the harm reduction, right? And I think, you know, one of the, the questions with reprieve is, Will, will we have those individuals that are both type one and type two? And will we be able to detect that? Now, my concern is we're starting on year six of reprieve. It hasn't been the home run that we saw. If people remember the Jupiter study where people were enrolled based on having an elevated CRP greater than two, right? And they had very similar to reprieve no clinical indication to be on a statin. That study got stopped relatively early because there was a home run with statins and said you should be on a statin. That hasn't happened yet. We don't know what the events are in reprieve, but until we, I think the reprieve, that's why I think the reprieve will be very helpful because I'm assuming, as you say, if 50% of the events that we're seeing in our population are non-atherosclerotic, 
we should be able to detect that, hopefully. I think there's confusion about the usefulness of the hemoglobin A1C yep. in, in HIV infection. Yeah, but I, I, I'm, I'm as confused. So, and I'm actually co-author on one of those studies. So, so it's very clear that with the different medications, they affect the indices, you know, the MCH, MCHC that you get on a CBC. So the hemoglobin A1C is dependent, all right, on the hemoglobin. It's the concentration, right? So you're look, really looking at glycemia long term. So if you have abnormalities, whether it is from a hemoglobinopathy, sickle cell, HIV medications, right? that alters the reading of the assay. And so what happens is that in some medications, so particularly with the nucleosides, we saw this, that the, that the actual blood sugar is higher than what the A1C is reading, right? So if your A1C comes back five, it could be that your person actually has an A1C of seven. I mean, uh, uh, five, five actually has a blood sugar of 130, right? And they would have diabetes. And then the reverse is that like with protease inhibitors where you, you, you really do have that reverse that you could have a high A1C, but they don't have diabetes. And so I think, you know, the endocrinologists wind up seeing these patients. Um, Todd Brown actually gave an eloquent talk. It's on ACT-HIV on the website talking about this, but from an endocrinologist standpoint, they're getting referrals to our patients whose A1Cs are, are not adequate, yet they find out they don't even need to be on diabetic meds in the first place. So, you know, we need to be cautious about it. Again, we don't have data on the integrase inhibitors. Tenofovir does alter the A1C reading somewhat, um, and more so as the higher the A1C goes. But, you know, again, they come back and they say, but if you do have diabetes, you should be monitoring the A1C. So it is a little bit, you know, it's, it is hard to wrap your head around. Um, I think many of us are still using A1Cs, but, you know, I would encourage people, grab a random blood sugar. You, you know, lots of times you're doing a chemistry panel anyway, if it's really abnormal, right? Some of these random blood sugar comes back greater than 200. You need to, and their A1C is five, you need to be saying, wait a minute, something's not right here. What are your thoughts about uh, antiretroviral neurotoxicity and its impact upon HIA in hand? On hand. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a firm believer of the, you know, the scores that have been given for the antiretrovirals in the spinal fluid and then choosing your regiment because you know, some people were saying maybe the best thing for somebody that does have uh, HIV-associated neurologic disease is to give drugs that really penetrate the CNS. And so they came up with a, a pretty nice scoring system on this penetration. You believe that the best drugs to treat hand would be AZT and indinavir. And, and so I don't think we're going there. Um, you know, I think there is data that really does suggest that, that suppressing the virus, that, that there is improvement. Um, there are a lot of studies ongoing right now that have been looking at different inflammatory markers and, and trying to sort out whether or not that's really related or not. But there could be uh, ongoing viral replication in the CNS that, that you know, you're not seeing in the peripheral and that mismatch could be yeah. 
associated with that. Well, thank you. Any other questions in the audience? The microphone, use the microphone. Yes. The recommendation for diabetes and uh, aspirin therapy, is that, is that your recommendation or no. is that, because I, I, you know, if you add up the risks, it's like equal. Uh, I read that study and interpreted that it was not useful. Um, for diabetes? Randomized study, right, because there was about a 1% difference in cardiovascular risk, and there was a 1% difference in the opposite way for bleeding risk, serious bleeding risk. So to me, it was a wash, but that's not the recommendation. So, the, so, the, so the Endocrine Society and the ADA, what they recommend is that in individuals that have diabetes, that you have to do that. You have to weigh what your risks of bleeding are, right? So the risk versus benefit, but they do feel that there is some benefit, benefit in giving aspirin for primary prevention in diabetics. Mm. So that's not, it's not my recommendation. Huh. It's, okay. it's coming the, from others. Sure. Now, I, I just wondered because the study I thought was negative, but, but I guess people well, are interpreting I, it as positive. They are interpreting because it is statistically significant in the number of events. I mean, I think it's a very small margin that it's statistically significant when you look at the number of events that occurred. But it, when you weigh it against the risks of bleeding, right, there still was oh, okay. a decrease right. in the number of vascular events. So therefore, for any interpretation of aspirin, in my opinion, that's, it's, it's a close call. But And then the, the new, quote, simpler uh, AHA guidelines. Yep. Um, the, I'm trying to download the app, but it's 150 megabytes for this simple guidelines. So, uh, <laughs> so the simple, the, the, one, the one that's the, what I call made for dummies is 22 pages long. Right. And it's, it's actually pretty nice. It's got big pictures and that oh, good. Kind of like yeah, that's good for me. You know, <laughs> um, it's very much like that take home message I gave you. It just gives you blocks of, of who it should be. I, I have to tell you that in doing this, and I was doing it with a friend that does adolescent medicine, it's not as simple as it really seems to be. But I mean, clearly, you know, the, the greater than 190 people that have greater than 20% risk, that's a no brainer, go sure. on a statin. Yeah. But I think what this guideline did was by including HIV as a risk enhancer, mm -hmm. is giving more guidance. Sure. It is, it had more awareness to others. And it doesn't say an absolute, it says favors, right? right? And, and does it have the same? Do we use the ASCVD risk calculator? Is that the risk calculator we use? Yep. And then the ASCVD guidelines, um, I think, does not recommend rechecking lipids once you're on the correct dose of a statin. Do, does this, is this guideline, is there, are they it, silent on It does on say that? that you should check the lipids to assure that you've had the percent reduction that's oh, okay. expected. Right, that's really helpful. And, and yeah, it is different in that sense. And it actually, I didn't, go into the whole, the big thing that's like whatever it is, 500 some pages, but, but it does talk about uh, PCSK9 inhibitors and other methods, uh, other treatments, which the previous guidelines didn't. So thank you. Sure. Thank you.